It's Daily Thunder, the special holiday edition. The Ellerslie campus is closed through Christmas break, but Daily Thunders are still booming forth daily through this podcast. For those of you that like to enjoy Daily Thunder live and in person on the Ellerslie campus, mark your calendars for our relaunch on Monday, January 13th. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit ellerslie.com. This episode is a part of a special commemorative series featuring Ellerslie staff picks for the best Daily Thunder episodes of 2019 and is delivered by Eric Ludi. I've been going through a, a new series, uh, almost like an accidental series. I, I started on uh, Sunday with uh, a message called The Endless Frontier, which is very deep in my life as far as if you were to break me apart into pieces and say, what, what makes Eric tick? Uh, well, there's obvious ones like Jesus. But as far as life philosophies, life uh, concepts, so I gave The Endless Frontier because I, I just haven't shared it. I didn't share it the whole semester, and it was like, you know what, this, these guys in the final day, it'd be a great one. And then on Monday, I sort of built on that with... Uh, the message I gave on Monday, which was uh, a really powerful concept of the principle of, uh, of no and how no and yes work in the kingdom of heaven. You know, a God that promises to say yes, can he actually say no? And so how does that work? And that's been a very, very significant thing in my life to understand just how God works with his children and how a good, good father is. And so this one is building on that. These, this is, again, another life lesson and the, the title's a little obscure, The Mayflower Screw, but uh, I'll build on that and, and sort of unpack that as we progress. But I think this will be a really encouraging message for you guys. I mean, this is, this is like kernel ideas in my life that have shaped the way I, I live, the way I approach uh, God, the way I approach others, the way I approach life and decisions. And so these are some, some juicy things that took decades to form inside of me. And here I'm just like, whipping them out and sharing them with you uh, this morning, but they're really, really powerful things uh, in my life. So the Mayflower screw. In Genesis 22, we have a very, very significant story, and you're all familiar with it, but it's, uh, we have the Abraham-Isaac test, where God is going to request that Abraham take his only son, which is such a funny statement because he has Ishmael too, right? What, what, what was Ishmael chopped liver? And, and to take him up to a mountain that he will be shown and sacrifice him. And the oddity of this situation, the extremity of this situation should not be lost on any of us. But the point of what I want to focus on in this is not necessarily the story itself, but the significance of how this story teaches a principle and an idea. There's all sorts of things that you could take Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham, Isaac, and, and look at. It's like the first mention of many, many key themes in Scripture, like obedience, worship. Uh, well, there's love, I think, is the first time mentioned is in this passage of all things. And so what you see is, the in, according to the principle of first mentions, this would be a very, very significant story and, of course, it is a picture of Jesus and the cross, the Father's provision of a ram in the thicket, which is more of what I want to focus on. So as I go through this, you're going to notice that I give you the beginning of the story, and then we sort of skip to the end. And so my goal isn't to teach you the story of Abraham and Isaac as much as to show you something in the midst of it. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. <clears throat> so Isaac obviously doesn't know what's going on here. <clears throat> Sorry. And so he sees all the necessities for a sacrifice, but we're missing something, and that is the lamb. Where, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham makes this cryptic, uh, rather profound statement, uh, and that is that God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And that's it's very, very important because I want to go in and into the idea of provide and I want us to just recognize what Abraham's faith is, that God will provide a lamb. And so the Old Testament is, 
oftentimes we think that, well, how were they saved in the Old Testament? Were they saved by keeping the law? Well, they were saved by believing that God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. If you want to say it that way, that's the faith of our forefathers in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, how do you, what is it that saves us? Well, we believe that God has supplied a lamb. In other words, going up and to the cross, it was still faith that saved. It wasn't ever keeping the law. The law is insufficient to bring about salvation. The law is merely a schoolmaster, which teaches a soul you have a need of a savior. You see, you can't do that. You have to be perfectly righteous, and you're not. You see, the law is proving that in your life. And so what we see is an incredible picture, a foreshadow of everything that makes for faith. God himself, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Then Abraham lifted his eyes. So now we're skipping forward. Uh, we go through the whole journey. They actually go to a place that God shows them, which is Mount Moriah, which, of course, is extremely significant if you understand geography. And I, I should just have Nathan come up here and teach on Mount Moriah because that would be far more profound than Eric Ludi teaching on it. But this is actually the very spot of Calvary. All those years later in Jerusalem is going to be Mount Moriah. And you could almost guess, okay, if we were betting people that where Jesus' cross stood was in this exact spot. Okay, just one of those spiritual hunches that you have, right? That God is making a symbol, a statement, and even his geography seems to testify of who he is. It's interesting. If you look at the calendar uh, to a Jew, it's like the same things happen throughout the calendar. And so these days become very significant, like the day of Passover every year. And so you study that all throughout history of the, of the Jews, and you recognize, wow, a ton of stuff happened on that day. And so when the Jews get to that day, hey, it's a day of great remembrance and great significance. And of course, it's the day of the cross. And for us as, as believers, it's like, wow, everything is fulfilled there. And so even geography, the calendar, all these things overlap to, to relay to us the clear picture of Jesus and what he's done. So Abraham lifts the knife, and he's ready to sacrifices some, which is just hard to even comprehend what Abraham would have been going through to even go to that level of obedience. It says, then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it for a burnt offering instead of his son. You have the gospel right there. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So this idea of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. It is a statement of who he is, which is that he was, he is, and he always will be the same. And what is he? He's a provider. It is just a fact of God's nature that in every situation, the Lord will provide. But where's the lamb? Oh, he'll provide. And so in this situation... If I were to sort of drill down into the significance in my life, it's that God leads me in, in my life to, to sacrifice, to obey, to worship, to love, just as he is Abraham. It's obviously different. He's never asked me for Hudson, my eldest, and say, lay down your son. It, that, it hasn't been that, but he has still asked me for sacrifice, for obedience, for worship, for love. And as I follow through and obey, I trust that in circumstances where I have no idea how I'm going to make it, how's this going to work, that I can say with confidence in, in agreement with the father of the faith known as Abraham, God will provide for himself a lamb. God always provides. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. His name is Jehovah Jireh. And so this is, for me, I always picture this ram and you know, he's just eaten, you know, he's, maybe he wanders off from where he's supposed to be, and he's like, and he makes his way, and there's some shiny thing in a bush over here, and he's like going after it, but the, in the fullness of time, this ram is brought into this thicket, and then gets its horns caught, and right as Abraham lifts his knife, God says, stop, and then he hears a rustle behind him, and turns around, and there's this ram. You see, in the perfect timing of God's ways, he steers the course of events and the course of nations to show himself the provider. And for me, this has been a very significant thing in my life to recognize that God sees ahead of time that Abraham will be there. He knows he's bringing Abraham up this side of the mountain. Meanwhile, he's bringing the ram up this side of the mountain. 
And he's testing Abraham to see if Abraham will follow him. Does Abraham believe that God will provide? Yes. I mean, Abraham, the tension in his soul, I cannot even imagine what he was going through. But it says in the New Testament that Abraham believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead, which ironically, up to that point in Scripture, had never happened before. So that, that's a great faith to say, okay, God, you've promised that the descendants of Isaac will be as the sands of the seashore as the stars in the heavens. But you're asking me to lay him down. So I trust that even if I sacrifice him here, you can bring him back to life. I mean, what a, what a faith. And so for us to recognize this Abrahamic faith is meant to be ours. That we are willing to obey God even when it is difficult. And to do things that would bring us to our extremity, but trust the whole while. God sees, God knows, and there will be a ram in the thicket. So the word provision, now I, I put uh, a little separation between pro and vision. Pro meaning before, vision meaning vision, sight. You see something. You see something before. You see, this word is extremely interesting. I mean, we hear the word a lot, provision, but we don't usually think about the word. Pro, vision. In other words, God sees ahead of time. He sees Abraham. He knows where he's leading Abraham, and he sees that ram. And he knows that that ram needs to get to that exact spot at this time. So God is working way in advance to make provision for Abraham. Now, did you know that that's how he does it in our life too? That God knows where you're at now, and you feel like he's forgotten you. It's like, God, you have to be kidding. I need to raise my knife in this situation and sacrifice my only son? This, I mean, have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? He hasn't. Meanwhile, he is directing, steering, just, you know, touching the fluffy backside of this ram to get that ram exactly where he needs to be at the perfect time. So we have to trust that God provides that he sees our needs before we get there so that the supply is there in the perfect moment for when we need it. And this is how we function as Christians. So the great, this is what I call provision, the great language of God's sovereignty unto his people. The word sovereignty oftentimes leads to some odd behaviors and thinking patterns in Christianity. Whereas for me, it should just lead us to the fact that God is in complete control. And that he sees the intimate movements of every situation, and he considers them. And he's a good father. And so therefore, if he says he's going to do something, he will. And in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So when you walk in obedience, when you worship your Lord, when you function in love, all these things that are revealed in this story as the firsts, this is the essence of the life of faith. But Father, where is the lamb of sacrifice? God has supplied he will provide always. In fact, we know even as we're walking up one side of the mountain, you know what we can even say to ourselves? There will be a ram in the thicket. And that's literally, I could have called this message the ram in the thicket because that's, that's the great principle of my life. If I could say it, bake it down, it's like, no, there will be a ram in the thicket. So whoever asks me, it's like, well, Eric, how is this going to be taken care of? And by the way, I always have situations like that. It's like, well, how is this going to work? Well, God will have a ram in the thicket. That's the simple answer. I don't know. I don't know how he's going to do it. Well, how is he going to get the ram into the thicket? I don't know. That's God's business. My job is to trust. I need to walk up this side of the mountain, and on this other side of the mountain, I can't see the other side. I can't see how that ram's going to make it up, and that's part of what faith is. I have to trust that God's going to bring the ram up the other side while I'm doing the obedience on the other side. And is there a tension in that? Oh, yeah. That's what faith is, though. Faith is not sight. It is a wrestling. Every day you wake up. You could believe one day and be strong in faith. The next morning you wake up, and on that, th it's a three-day journey, by the way, for, for Abraham. Could you imagine what this tension was like? So it's like, okay, God, you will provide. Isaac says, where's the lamb? Oh, God will, God will provide. His voice breaks. The next day he wakes up, and guess what? Isaac says, you know, Father, where again is that, that lamb? The Lord, the Lord will provide. You see, he can't see, but he knows. By faith, he knows that God is caring for him, that God is orchestrating these details, that God is not a lying God, that God has promised and he cannot fail. He doesn't know how it's going to work, but he can trust God. 
So this is a story in uh, the Old Testament of Joseph. It's a famous line where Joseph has gone through some rather difficult things, if you remember, sold into slavery and ends up in a prison. And here's a, he's a good guy, too. I mean, everything he's doing is actually godly behavior, but everything has gone south for this guy. And yet, though he was betrayed even by his brothers, though he was put in a prison, all of these bad things happened, and he endured great suffering. The whole while, he begins to realize, and whether he realized it in this moment or whether he realized it before this and it was a dawning on his soul, he recognized that everything that he was going through was steering him towards something greater. That God had a position for Joseph that could only be gained through this unique, odd, difficult journey up one side of the mountain. And he couldn't see on the other side that he was going to be put second in command of Egypt at one of the most critical junctures of history and that he would be used to deliver his entire people. I mean, how could you see that part, right? And yet he had to trust the whole while and he had to remain faithful to God as he was climbing up the backside of the mountain. And then on the other side, God was steering events. And even, you know, with it, whether it's the cupbearer having a dream or whether it's Pharaoh having a dream that he cannot figure out, all these things, and then in the perfect time, as he raises his knife, if you, if you will, that there's a rustle in the bush, and there's a ram in the thicket. God has directed all the circumstances together. But as for you, you thought evil against me. This is Mo Moses. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. But God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. And in Romans 8, of course, one of the most famous uh, scriptures that most of us memorize, whether or not we fully understand the gravity of this statement, I think this is one of those uh, scriptures that throughout your Christian life, you mature in your depth of relationship to it. It's like when you're young, you just memorize it because your parents want you to memorize it. And then as you're growing, you're like, that's a good scripture. But you don't live it out oftentimes. You just sort of repeat it to yourself, almost like good poetry. But then there comes a point in time where you're like, get it. And you're like, okay, I actually believe that in this situation, though it seems really bad, that God can work even this for my good. And then it transcends to God works all things. That means every situation, he is steering and turning it for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And this is an ever-increasing, like every time I go back to this, I keep, you, you almost feel like you want to come to a more novel scripture. You know how you... In your Christian life, you want to sound like you're, you're learning something to all those around you. So it seems strange to return to like John 3.16. It's like, oh, God's revealing to me John 3.16. Everyone looks at you like, what are you, a new believer? And he's like, well, there is so much depth in these things. And John 3.16 still amazes me. And I still go back to John 3.16 like, whoa, there is so much there. And this is one of those scriptures. It has so much depth. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. All things are working together for good. So all the enemy means for evil, God converts it. He is a God that converts all of these things. This is a very critical aspect of my life and any Christian's life is to recognize that when we can't see and we're walking up one side of the mountain, that God sees that God knows how to convert and to take, whether it's we're sold into slavery by our brothers, thrown into Potiphar's prison, all these things that look like the enemy has the upper hand, that God has forgotten us, that God has failed to come through for us, that we trust that on the other side of the circumstance, on the other side of the mountain, he is leading a ram. And in the perfect time, when the crux of the matter comes about, that there's a... a, a in the bush, and God converts the situation and reveals the Christ. So even in this situation that we see with Abraham and Isaac, in that one moment where he says, stop, everything is ready, the stage is set, the lights poof, turn on, and the Christ is revealed. So the Mayflower screw, this is the name of the message, so it's about time I get to it, right? So... I remember I was uh, doing a message. It was called The Means of Grace. And it's a great message. If you want to go deeper with this, that's, that's a really good message that I would recommend. 
And one of our pastors uh, said, hey, that's like the Mayflower screw. Have you ever heard of that? And I used to teach early American history, so I was feeling sort of bad that I didn't know what it was. It was like, well, I should know what the Mayflower screw is. But I didn't, and so he told me, and so now I do know, and now you will know. And I, I don't know that I can do it justice because I haven't studied it for quite a few years, but I'll give you the summary because that's the main point. And the, in, on the Mayflower, as they're uh, crossing the ocean, uh, they run into a crisis, okay? They're, if you could just imagine what this is like. They feel led to leave England uh, to get away from certain religious persecution, to move to this new world. I mean, they're risking everything, right? But they're doing it in obedience to God the best they know. And they would say that they believe that God is leading them here. And so to the best they know, they are headed on this journey, but they don't know what awaits them. And, but they have a clear sense of God's leading, okay? That represents a lot of our lives. But the tumultuous waves, winds, the seasickness along the way, doesn't that sound like our lives? In other words, it's not just an easy passage across the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it's tumultuous. It's, it's challenging at times. And, okay, so you know what happens? The mast of the ship, they're about halfway across the Atlantic. The mast of the ship snaps. Okay, this is about as bad of a situation as can occur when you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And this is before cell phones, satellite dishes, you know, all the different things that could call on a Coast Guard to potentially come to your aid. They're in the middle of nowhere without any solution. The crew of the ship was not Christian. It was just the passengers, which were the pilgrims. And so they had hired this ship to take them across. So the, the captain, this is his ship, this is a big deal. And so the captain says, we need to turn back. We are closer to England than we are to the New World. That's a bad moment if you've uh, finally escaped England and you're headed somewhere and now every force in your life is saying you need to turn around and backtrack. Oh, the tensions. And the pilgrims pled and said, please don't. Let us pray. We believe, listen to this, this is the, the way that the pilgrims actually thought. We believe that God has not led us here just to abandon us. We believe that he has a solution. And we must pray for wisdom that he will do something. Our God is not, just because we're in the middle of the Atlantic doesn't mean he's lost sight of us. I mean, that, you could imagine, it's like, well, God may understand what's on land, but in the middle of the ocean? How could he know what's happening way out here in the middle of nowhere? But they believed that God had not led them to the middle of the Atlantic only to have a crisis and turn back. So they prayed. And they asked God, they said, this is what they called it. They called it a means of grace. They said, God, we believe that you have a means of grace, a ram in the thicket. In other words, we believe that you have steered us into this place that on the other side of the mountain you have led a ram to this exact situation for our salvation. And so they didn't know if God would just raise the mast up supernaturally, <laughs> fix it into place and heal it. Okay, that's one option, Right? Or if God would give them wisdom for another option. And he did. One of them said, let's look in the hull of the boat, on, in our cargo. What they needed was some, and I, I don't, I've never been able to mentally figure out how this worked, but they needed something that would hold the mass together so no matter if the winds are gusting against it, it would still hold together. So it would have to be some extreme device that would pull this together. And they're not in England. So someone says, I think we should go down into the hole of, of the boat. I think there's going to be something down there in our cargo that will supply the answer. And so they, uh, Bradford, uh, was it William Bradford, had brought a printing press with him. And in this printing press, there was this long screw. I mean, it's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard of. It's a long screw that had been specially designed for this machine. And they removed the screw... And it was just enough to, how I, like I said, I cannot explain to you how it did it, but it actually fixed it and put it together. And the crew, the captain and the crew were just like, you've got to be kidding. In the middle of the Atlantic, there was a screw that was in a printing press because of however they made this printing press, they invented this huge long screw, which just perfectly suited this broken mast. It fixed it in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So for the pilgrims, they said, see, God supplied the ram. In every circumstance, there's a screw. 
No matter what your situation, I don't care if you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. What do you do? You don't pull a captain and his crew. You pull the pilgrims. What they said is, we believe. We believe that God has led us here and that he has not forsaken us, that he knows our circumstances, and he will provide. And guess what? He always does. For those that believe their God, they will always find the Mayflower screw. It's always there. In the most odd of places sometimes, but God supplies. So we're going to call this one the 72 Dotson. Now, technically, I have no idea what make and model of the car it was, but that just sounds about right. Doesn't that sound like it would be, because you guys know the story, right? The, the 72 Dotson. It just sounds like it probably would be a 72 Dotson. It probably was something a little bigger than a 72 Dotson. I don't even know what a 72 Dotson looks like, and Dotson doesn't even make cars anymore. That's why it just, it just sounds old, right, for me to use a 72 Dotson. But that's my placeholder. So we're going to go to South America uh, in this story, and you have a missionary family. Do you remember what country it was? Do you guys remember that? Uh, I can never remember. It's in some mountainous region uh, of South America. And uh, this is a family that has given up everything to follow Jesus. And one of the key principles in their life that the dad has always taught them is no matter where they're at, no matter what situation, God is in control. And so it's the same thing. It's the Mayflower screw that this family knew. Now, that's going to be tested, okay? They're in they're the equivalent of the middle of the Atlantic here. They're in the, but they're in this mountainous region, and they're in their car. And it's like no one for, I don't know if we could say 50 to 100 miles. I mean, there's no... Uh, nothing, okay? They're just, they're in the true middle of nowhere and their brakes go out of, on them and they lose control. They, f they finally just pull off to the side of the road, but they're in a pretty bad situation where no one would find them. And so the first thing the dad says is, Wait, all right, remember, God knows we're here. We trust that God has provision for us, that he knows our circumstances and there's a solution. So let's pray. Let's ask God to lead us and to give us wisdom of what to do. Because that would be a pretty bad situation. You're with your family in the middle of nowhere. Your car no longer has brakes. So you can't drive. Ah, what do you do? And so they prayed. And one of them said, I think we should look in the forest. Uh, and could you imagine? Why, what, what are you going to find in the forest? Uh, and you could say, well, it could be like a hermit's cottage, maybe. Okay, so they, they start looking in the forest, and they come across the strangest thing. They come across a, so imagine that they were driving a 72 Datsun. Okay, I'm just, you need to use your imagination for this. They're driving a 72 Datsun. So now in the forest, in the middle of nowhere in South America, what do they find? A 72 Datsun that has been sitting there, it's covered with brush. It's like been sitting there for potentially 20 years. Somehow I think they knew it was 20 years. I don't remember what gives that away in the story. But what do they find in the forest? But a, the exact same make and model, uh, same year of their car. And they're all looking at each other like, what? No way. I mean, this is like an American, well, American, Datsun sounds, what, Japanese or something. I'm saying it's from America is, is where it would have been uh, probably built. And so they're, they're looking at this like, what is this doing here? This is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. And so they, they start, you know, they pry open everything and they, they realize it's been stripped clean. So they had this thought that maybe it would have the parts that they could fix their vehicle. And the next thing you know, they realize that it's been stripped clean. It's been sitting there for 20 years, stripped clean. It's like, whoa, what are we supposed to do now? And so they, they all sort of stand back like it seemed like God's provision, but what, this, how could this be God's provision? This is the strangest thing. It's like we get so close to a solution. We're all excited, and then there's nothing there. And they could not get the trunk open. It was jammed. And so they said, let's just keep trying to get the trunk open. I mean, what are you going to find in the trunk of this old car? Uh, it had to be older than 72, doesn't it, uh, to make this story work. Uh, I'm thinking about that mathematically, too, because it didn't happen in 1992. Uh, is an old story. But so they finally get the trunk open. And you know what they find in there? They find a box. You know what's in the box? Brand new, unused brake parts for that model of vehicle that was in the trunk. So they stripped the thing, but they, whoever had stripped the car could not get the trunk open. So when they finally got the trunk open, 
they found brake parts in the middle of nowhere. Now, that's a great story, okay? That's a classic ram in the thicket story. But what's encouraging about it is to just see that God oversees. He is a provider. We need to rest in that fact. Christianity does not rest upon our power, our ability to see. It rests upon his ability. He's able to do these things. Our job is to rest in that. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. You see, we put a lot of strain on ourselves to solve life's dilemmas. Our job is to have faith that God will solve life's dilemmas. It doesn't mean we don't do anything. We still have to walk up this side of the mountain. But oftentimes walking up that side of the mountain, we don't have all the answers. And that's a tough place to be. Father, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Thank you, son, for bringing that up for the 10th time. But I'm not exactly sure. I just know the Lord is going to provide. That's what we know. The Lord will provide. The cripple that crossed the ranges. Love this story. A good story. So, and I wish I could give these stories better, uh, like with greater detail. Some of you are going to poke holes in my stories, like, how, how did that work? South America, what part of South America has a forest and is on a mountain? Uh, I mean, so I could see some of the thoughts. And I need to, like, go back to the stories and get greater uh, granular details. So I'm giving you summaries of good stories. They really happened. I just, some of my details are a little shady. So this one takes place in Ethiopia. I do know that. And that's better than my South America. I just sort of gave a whole continent <laughs> to pick from. I cannot remember the country it was in. Uh, this one, I know it was in Ethiopia. And in Ethiopia, I guess, because I've actually never been to Ethiopia, there's a mountain range in the middle. And uh, so there was the missionary, uh, there, were, there was a missionary years and years ago that actually came to one side of the mountain range and sort of laid down his life and, and developed disciples, planted a church, and it was thriving on one side of the mountain. On the other side of the mountain, they had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was very dark. There was a lot of uh, evil that was still controlling uh, that, that other side of the mountains. And, I mean, to the point where literally, it was, if you ever crossed the mountains, they would kill you. It was savage uh, in how they would behave. So this other side would never even dream of going to that side. But now they were being awakened by the love of Jesus. And so they held a council because they were strong. They were becoming a strong church. And so they all gathered, and they said, we really feel a burden as a church that we need to send missionaries over to the other side of the ranges. And that we need to, we recognize we may not come back. And so I would like to invite any of the men in here that feel like they would be personally called to be the one to carry the gospel over the ranges uh, to come forward tonight. And I don't know what it was. It was like 20 different uh, men came forward. And there was one uh, young man uh, that came forward, but he couldn't walk forward because he was a cripple. And he actually would sort of slide. And I don't remember. The description was so extreme on his body. Like one of his legs was sort of back behind his neck. Uh, and so he would actually uh, take usually a stick, and he would uh, slide forward. And it was a very challenging way for movement, obviously, but this man was very determined. He'd been changed by Jesus Christ sincerely, and he wanted to be a missionary, and he felt called that night to go, like a specific call that God was saying, you need to go and carry the gospel uh, to this savage people, and all of the leadership looked at him with pity and, you know, just sort of, I don't remember his name, but they said, look, we really appreciate what, what you were desiring to do. It's inappropriate. It wouldn't work. You would never survive even the trip up one side of the mountain, let alone the other side down. I mean, this is like hard for a vigorous, strong man to make it over. And I, there's just no way that this would work. So, no, we can't receive you into this missionary movement, but thank you. And so this was really difficult for this young man because he felt very specifically called, and he recognized he was not going to be sent by this group, so he decided that he would be sent by God, and he headed out. He headed out as a cripple with his stick to literally climb the mountain and to go down the other side. I guess he survived on roots and berries the whole time, but it was the next day they were like, where's where so-and-so? And they could not find him anywhere. They had no idea what happened to him because there's no way he would have 
gone up the mountain. I mean, that's just, that's just impossible. But this guy was so determined to share the gospel with these savages that he went up one side of the mountain, down the other. And by the time he arrived in the lower regions on the other side of the uh, mountain, he was so physically spent, weak, and frail that he was in some kind of coma state. He was, but he, he made it somehow. And then he went into some kind of uh, lockdown physically in his body. And the next thing he remembers is that he awakened and he was being cared for. And they were tending to him and it was these savages that were caring for him. And uh, they were doing whatever they could to revive him and to give him life, which was unexpected. And so he spent time with them and they were, they just wanted to hear him speak, but he didn't know the language. So he spent time and there were certain similarities in the language, so it didn't take long and he began to pick up on how to communicate with them. And what he began to recognize is they wanted to hear why he came to them. He had something for them, and they wanted to hear it. So they, they set up a special time for him to share with them of why he came across the ranges. And he shared. And every single one in the village gave their life to Christ. And you can just imagine how the cripple was feeling in this whole situation. It's so shocking. However, I want to share a bit of backstory with you, which will help you understand what was taking place. And this is going to go along with the Mayflower screw concept. When Abraham is walking up one side of the mountain, God is doing something on this side of the mountain. He is steering a ram into a thicket. And in every situation in our life, we need to recognize that there's two sides to that mountain. There's something that was happening on this side of the mountain in, in Ethiopia before that cripple was obedient to go up. That actually, I mean, why would you call a cripple? Okay, if you're God, it just seems totally irrational that you would call a cripple. You know what was happening on this side? So in the, amongst the savages, they had had a disease strike their village, I don't know how long before it was, let's say a decade before, and it was ravaging the village, and there was a cripple in their village that found a special plant, and actually it, cr it created a, like an antibiotic. It, it solved the, the riddle and saved everyone in the village. And so a cripple, to them, was a messenger of solution. And that a cripple was uniquely by, you know, called by the gods to actually bring a message of hope and salvation. So when they found this cripple passed out at the bottom of the mountain, they knew that he had a message for them. This is one of the most extraordinary stories ever in the history of the world right here. And so you have a guy that would be considered unfit by all of us as Christians to even go as a missionary, and yet he was the one that they could receive. They would have killed, and they would even say this, they would have killed every other missionary that came over. But there was one that could communicate with them, and that was the cripple. And they were prepared by God for that moment. The cripple had to be willing to, with his stick, climb up the mountain. Meanwhile, God prepared the ram. And when the two come together, what you see is something profound. Now, those are grand level stories, right? Our lives don't always function at that level, but they function in that way. And there are things right now <clears throat> that you can't see. The question is, when someone asks you, so, how's that going to work? How do you expect to do that? There's no way that could happen. The Lord will provide the lamb. The Lord will provide. There's always going to be a ram in the thicket. We're in the middle of the Atlantic. There is no possible way that we, you can resurrect a... Uh, a mast in the middle of the Atlantic. We have no tools. We have no ability. You need something, oh, I don't know, three feet long like a screw. Where are you going to get that? The Lord will provide. And he always does. And what's amazing is he doesn't need to materialize a screw in the hull of the boat that day. No, he's working long before that to make sure that that screw gets in that printing press and then to move, uh, is it William Bradford? William Bradford to go, you know what, I think I should take this printing press. And his wife says, there's no way we're going to take a printing press. 
across the Atlantic. He says, I just really feel we need to. And then someone else says, hey, we might need a printing press. And then his wife says, okay, okay, William, we'll take the printing press. And then the printing press, maybe it doesn't even fit in through the door, so they make a special entrance, and all these people are complaining about it. Like, why are we taking it? It's taking up way too much room, and it's weighing down the boat. Now we need to you know, balance it out over here, and everyone's like arguing over this printing press. And God's getting that printing press into that hole so that when they get to the middle of the Atlantic... Then it's going to tell someone, it's like, I think something's going to be down there. And then you can just imagine that when they're all walking around, it's like, I don't see anything that would work. Someone's knee bumps against the printing press, and it opens up a side panel, and there's this big, long screw that is exposed. You can just sort of feel the drama. It's like the, in the bush behind. It's like, well, hark, what's that? Turn around, and there's a ram. God has his ways of showing you the ram at the very moment you need to see it. Now, for us... We want God to give us a snapshot picture of the ram when he's way down here and then to show you that he's going to lead him here and then here and then here and then here and get him right into that bush at the exact moment you need it. You want to have a play-by-play announcement of how it's all going to work. And he says, I can't give you that. What I can give you is a promise. What I can give you is a promise is that that ram will be there when you need it. And not before. See, what Abraham would like is to cross the crest of the mountain, and then what does he see? The ram. And instead of having to bind Isaac and stick him on an altar, God can just say, just testing you, here's the ram. Okay, that's, that's what we would prefer. There's a lot better models for how we would go about doing it in our life and the way God leads us through. But what God is doing in our life is he is building faith in us. He's refining us, and these circumstances are so critical for our development Will we embrace them or will we fight them? Backed up to the Red Sea, one of the most important stories in all of biblical history is one that matches our life. Moses is simply doing what God's asking. Wow, it's, it's hard. Okay, he comes in and he asks Pharaoh to, to let his people go and it only gets worse. Now they have to make More bricks without straw, with less straw. It's like, this is just a terrible situation. Everything seems to go the opposite direction. God, at any point in time, could get those people out. God could just kill Pharaoh. He could destroy all the Egyptians. He could do it a lot easier than the way we're we're watching it unfold. We have to go through 10 plagues? Well, I mean, I've oftentimes said that, you know, if I was doing it, I wouldn't have just said, hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? He's like, a rod. Throw it down. He's like, what is it? It's It's like a snake. It's like, oh, that's impressive. Hey, Moses, what's that in your hand? A rod. Throw it down. It turns into Godzilla and eats those two other magicians and then picks up Pharaoh and goes, ha! And then Moses says, stop. And then Pharaoh's like, ah, help me. Just take all of the people. Just take them, take them. It's like, and then what you say to Godzilla is just, just hold them there until we're out of town. Okay, there's, we could have done this a lot easier and it would not involve a need for faith. It would just be easy. And that's the way we oftentimes prepackage our understanding of what Christianity is. But there is a process that God is walking through, and it's not just to train us, it's also to give mercy and a season for repentance for Pharaoh. In other words, God is gracious. Even though Pharaoh may make the final choice to deny, hey, God still gives a season. He shows mercy. He gives opportunity after opportunity. We need to see there's multiple sides to each story that is taking place. They finally get out after 10 plagues, and they travel three days. And what do they run into? <laughs> Great. They run into the Red Sea. They have mountains on both sides. Now Pharaoh's stirred up like a hornet with the most powerful military force of that time, and he's coming there surrounded. Okay, this is just a bad situation. Now here's the question for all of us. Did God see this situation before he got there? You see, if we trust that God has seen this, that God knew this, we can rest. If we feel like God is shocked, and we're like, oh, and God's like, oh no, I didn't think this through. We could, oh, we should have gone that way. Oh no, now you're stuck. You're sunk. There's no hope. However, Moses reasons very differently. Moses reasons that God's providence is leading them, and God has brought them here. I know it doesn't make any sense. Why would God lead us to the edge of a Red Sea? Why would he lead us to a place that has mountains on both sides so we can't go either way and we have the most powerful military force coming against us? This is 
not a good setup. Do you trust God? Do you trust that he is provider? Do you trust that he sees ahead of time and has steered all these events to bring about his glory? Because that's the, the question for all of us in our life when we reach a Red Sea. So, do you trust him right now? You know that the people picked up rocks to throw it at Moses? What did you do to us? How did you leave? Moses could simply say, God let us here, guys. I'm just heeding what he's doing. So I'm going to give you a very unusual thing that most people never get a chance to read because it's, we read the biblical account of the Red Sea, which we should. I'm going to read you Flavius Josephus's uh, take on the Red Sea, okay? So this is the historical a verbal passed down rendition of the, amongst the Jews of the Red Sea. There's some interesting stuff in it that I think you'll find fascinating in light of this. So now when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. And by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place for the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen. Okay, this isn't a good situation for the Israelites who have their women and children with them. They are brick makers. They have zero weapons. So they have no weapons. They have women and children with them, and they're surrounded by the most powerful military force in the world. Okay, you could imagine the anxiety levels that might be spiked by this. They're all armed. They also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up be, between inaccessible precipices in the sea. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God. You ever thought of despising dangers? I don't know what that would look like, but despising them. Because you get these dangers that'll stare you in the face. They're threats. They're impossibilities. You ever thought of despising them? It's like we, we usually, when we despise things, we usually despise people, right? And God says, don't do that. But despise dangers. Despise the obstacles. Like, eh, you stink. You know, you just sort of look at them and say, there's no way that you are going to be able to stop what God is going to do. Despise the dangers. I like that statement. I love this quote of Moses. It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. I have quoted that statement. I, this isn't the Bible right here, okay? This is just a historical account, but it is a fascinating statement on something we all know well, which is the story of Moses and the Israelites at the Red Sea. It is no better than madness to despair of the providence of God now. Providence. What, do you see anything about the word providence that sounds similar to what we're talking about today? Providence. <laughs> providence. It's the fact that he always is seeing ahead. He is steering events towards his ends. This is the word. This is the word we understand provide, okay? But we think of provide as going out and working and, you know, making some money so you can buy groceries, we don't recognize that the reason we are working to buy groceries is because tomorrow we see that we're going to have need of those groceries. We're miniature providers, okay? We provide, yes, but in the sense, the sense that God does, no way. God sees all. He knows all circumstances. He knows where all men and women and children are. He knows every cell. He knows the movements of stars, seasons, and he controls them all, and he steers everything. That little lamb, he moves around up into that thicket at the perfect time. He moves Pharaoh and his army, stops them with a cloud and a, and a flame of fire. He knows where those mountains are because he put them there. He put those passages that they're going to close off. He wanted Israel to be closed in. Why would he do that? Because he's going to demonstrate something to the nations. He's going to demonstrate not only his long-suffering and his mercy, but he's going to show his power, his authority, and his salvation. And what you see when that, I mean, Moses, listen to what he reasons. This is actually what it says in Josephus, not, not in the scriptures. This is what Josephus says. That Moses knew that God had a means of escape. He knew it. So he was either going to lift them up and fly them out of there, which, by the way, is just as crazy as a sea parting, 
okay, which would have been really cool. Could you imagine? They are all picked up and they fly out. That, uh, that would have been cool, okay? Now, the way, the way that God did it is, is really good, so I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that would have been really cool. That was one of the options. The other one is that he would make the mountains literally flatten them so they could escape. That was Moses' thinking, okay, he could flatten the mountains, he could fly us out of here, or he could literally make a way through the sea. So he obviously chose option three. But each of those options were completely ridiculous. And yet Moses stood strong. God has led us here. He will make provision. Father, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? The Lord will provide for himself the lamb. In every situation, that's what we say. The Lord will provide the answer. In every situation, that's the Christ. That's the picture of what he does for us. That's the kingdom of heaven. In a nutshell, our God supplies precisely what is needed. Father, I just ask that you would take these thoughts and that you would mature them and grow them up in us and that we would respond in our very circumstances today even though we only see one side of the mountain and we don't see the ram coming up the other side. We can't see it with our eyes, but we know in faith that you are bringing all things into a state of revelation of your glory, into a state of provision, into a state of readiness to supply all that is requisite and needed for our life and our circumstances. You are good, you are faithful, you are true, and we love you. It's in the precious name we pray. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Our live Daily Thunder online stream and our live in-studio Daily Thunder experience will be starting back on Monday, January 13th, when our team returns from their much-deserved holiday break. Meanwhile, we encourage you to plan a visit to our beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.